Welcome to the Keon Sports Podcast. I am your host, Vince McKee. Today, a very special guest, Bill DeMott. You knew him from his days in WCW and WWF as Hugh Morris, and also the WWE as Bill DeMott, his real name, clearly. And basically, I mean, this guy did it. He did everything. He wrestled. He trained. Um, his his uh, handprints are all over, you know, professional wrestling, and in a good way. So we are very excited to talk with Bill today. So sit back. Put your feet up and grab something cold to drink. Up next, here is Bill DeMott. And welcome back here to the Keon Sports Podcast. As we said, I am your host, Vince McKee. A beautiful Wednesday evening here on the Keon Sports Deck. Just beautiful weather to sit here out in the outside studio. And couldn't be more excited to have our guest on tonight, Bill DeMott. All right, without any further ado, let's get into the hotline now. All right, on the hotline now, Bill DeMott. You guys knew him in WCW as Hugh Morris. Also a little bit there in WWE as Hugh Morris and eventually started going by his real name when he trained wrestlers, Bill DeMott. Bill, welcome to Keon Sports Media Group. Hey, Vince. How you doing? Hello to, hello to your the fans out there and everybody listening. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, before we get to all the questions, I want to give you a, a chance right off the bat here to give yourself your podcast shout-out. Where can fans find you? Where can they learn more about Bill DeMott? I know you guys are doing a lot of things right now on the podcast network. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. Uh, right now, we are on the WWAB podcast. Um, right now, we can be seen on Facebook Live. Um, every day of the week, uh, we have a show. Uh, Paul Roma hosts the show. Uh, uh, Glacier Ray Lloyd hosts the show. Mike Drosy, um, Del Wilkes. And then we have a tremendous group. Uh, Mark Henry signing on as well. And we have Ken Patera, and it gives everybody a chance to get to know us outside of what they thought they knew about us as as uh, entertainers. So uh, we do that. My show is called Face Value. It's every Tuesday at five thirty Eastern time on uh, Facebook, and um, yeah, we love for people to join us. I mean, three point eight five million people have viewed our shows, and uh, we're just real happy with the way things are going. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we had uh, Mike Drossi on the show a few weeks ago. We have Del Wilkes coming up tomorrow. Um, So, yeah, no doubt, man. We're going to plug that. I know Ray Lloyd's coming off the hip surgery, so we're giving him a little bit of time to rest up, and we'll have him on as well. Now, I want to start from the beginning here. What got you interested in the world of professional wrestling? What, you know, and and not only that, but what steps did you take to make it happen? Right. Um, so I, I've, I've always told the story, and it's kind of, and everybody goes, ah, he's, you know, maybe it's just an entertaining version. My, uh, the truth is, I, I left college early um, with a little help from the dean. Uh, college, college wasn't my, wasn't made for me at the time, and and my dad at the time didn't want to see me just sitting around. I was athletic, you know, coming off of uh, high school ball and, and and college ball and all that. And he just didn't see a need for me to be sitting around doing nothing other than just working a regular nine to five. So he took me into Brooklyn and we went to Gleason's gym and Gleason's gym is famous for its boxing. Well, now Gleason's gym is famous for uh, the unpredictable Johnny Rods and training some of the best guys that have ever come out of pro wrestling or, you know, sports entertainment. So uh, I got, I, we went in and we were watching guys work out. Johnny had come over told me I was welcome to watch, but it wasn't for me. He didn't think I could do what those guys were doing in the background, and they were literally throwing themselves around and taking these bumps. I was in awe of that. You know, Before that, I was just a casual fan of, of 
the, the business. So when Johnny kind of challenged me with the fact that he didn't think I was made for that, uh, we drove home and I told my dad, I said, well, I've, I've got to prove this guy wrong and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So that's how it happened. And then things just kind of went from there. I never planned on it becoming a career. I never, to be honest, I never looked at it as a thing that I'd make a lot of money at. I just didn't want to be told I couldn't do something. Um, so I gave it a whirl and I put all my time and effort into it because once I started, I was addicted. I was addicted to the, the conversations with Johnny, what he was teaching me about the business, not just about the physical. And it, it just became uh, a 30 year career. I read somewhere, and you know, you know how it goes, Bill. You read a lot of stuff on the internet. Some of it's true, some yeah. of it, some of it's not. But I did read somewhere where you actually had a tryout match on Monday Night Raw early in your career. They were doing some tapings for WWE Superstars Wrestling Challenge, and back in those days, they kind of filmed everything together there. Did you have a match on Raw, like a tryout? I'm sorry. Did you repeat the question? Oh, it's okay. Did you have a tryout match on Monday Night Raw earlier in your career? I don't think it was, I don't, I, see, I'm not sure if it was a Raw because everything was taped, but the, I was brought in by um, Jerry Jarrett at the time, um, real early, real early in my career. Like, I had no business being there, but I, I was a big kid. And I had a look that was similar to a lot of the guys that were on the on the roster. And um, as a matter of fact, I had the same tryout days as Mike Drosy. Um, so, when we did the tryouts, um, I thought they went well. I had a lot of good feedback from guys like Bam Bam Bigelow and things like that. And lo and behold, the, the tryout was kind of null and void because the very next day, Jerry Jarrett was done with the company. So anybody that he brought in was kind of done, <laughs> you know, left at the sure. wayside as well. So um, I, I did have, uh, I did have two tryouts, as a matter of fact, with the WWF. One, was Pennsylvania, and to be honest, I don't know where the other one was, but I'm not sure if it was a Raw. I didn't. I know I didn't work on TV. So if it, if it was a Raw taping, it was darker for one of the other shows or something like that. Okay. Um, then how did you end up in WCW, and who came up with the name Hugh Morris? Well, I, I was, uh, you know, I was I was making my bones and everything in. Uh, Japan and Mexico, and my my second daughter was about to be born, and I, you know, I missed my first daughter being born, and that's how it is in this in this business. And so I, I knew the date around about when my second daughter was going to be born, so I made sure I was you know home. Um, and then I decided that I was going to make my last tour in Japan, um, and I got a phone call on a Sunday night from Kevin Sullivan. And word for word, and I've, I've said this before, and people laugh at it, but this is exactly the conversation. I picked up the phone and said, hello. He simply asked me, was I still fat and was I still wrestling? <laughs> and, yeah. And I answered yes to both because I knew Kevin. I knew who he was, and, and we got to know each other. He saw me a couple times in Japan. That was That's how we knew each other. He said, there's a, there's a plane ticket waiting for you tomorrow morning being made in Georgia. And I'm, you know, much like everything else, I, I'm trying, I'm kind of getting smart to the business. I thought it was just him being, a, you know, a wise guy. But lo and behold, I called the airline that he told me, and there was the ticket waiting. So I went and got on a plane, 
I flew to Macon, Georgia, to the Macon Coliseum. I met uh, Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff, and Kevin Sullivan in the bathroom. And we talked about what they wanted to do. They offered me um, a job right then and there. The four of us shook hands, and I went home. And that's that's how I that's I got the job because Vader and Paul Orndorff got into that big tussle that a lot of people heard about. Yep. And Vader was let go. So Vader was let go. There was a spot open, and the time you know that's when they were feeding the big men to Hogan, and. You know, Sullivan knew me from Japan and stuff, and he said, well, let's bring him in, and that's how I got the job. So when, when I did, when I finally started working for them, like, in person, because I was home for another two months before anybody ever contacted me, uh, they brought me to CNN, and they asked me to, to, they wanted to see if I could talk, so they asked me to do a promo about Randy Savage. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm like a big kid, I go, wait a minute, talk about Randy Savage? Well, I, I forgot what I was supposed to say. I started to do that laugh that I became famous for. Um, and Terry Taylor at the time was the guy producing the the, uh, the promo. And his wife uh, had said, that guy's very humorous. And there was Hugh Morris born right from there. That's incredible. I got to share with you very, very quickly here. I have two daughters myself, ages seven and a half and four and a half. In fact, my four and a half year old is, uh, she's coming home from preschool as we speak, her last day of preschool. I almost missed her being born. I was covering the UFC. Um, let me tell you, I was covering the UFC in Cleveland, here where I live. First, last, and only time that the UFC's ever been to Cleveland, but I'm there, you know, as, as a credential media member. And I get the call that my wife um, went into labor. Uh, I hauled ass from downtown Cleveland to Fairview Hospital as quickly as I could. And I tell you what, man, I walk in that delivery room, she's pushing. And it wasn't about two minutes later that we had a new baby. So oh, wow. <laughs> all I can tell you is I know the feeling. And, uh, you know, it's not something you live down easily if you miss it. So that was <laughs> that was definitely, you know, a rush. So I, I feel for you. And there's no better feeling than being a girl dad. I love having my two little oh, girls. Man. It's the best, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's great. So... I want to ask you this too. So, you know, you're with WCW six or seven months and all of a sudden they bring in the NWO. It became, in, in my eyes, one of the biggest things in the history of wrestling. Um, I, I actually liked it until it got way out of control. But, you know, being with the company at that time, what were your thoughts about the NWO? Why do you feel it worked? And then why do you feel it eventually fizzled out like it did? Well, I, I, I feel like it worked because look, look who it was. I mean, you had you had two of the top dogs in the business, and then you added you know Hogan to the mix, and it, it you know it was something new. It was refreshing. It was you know, and everything that WCW was touching at the time was turning to gold. So you, you had Holland Nash coming in, fresh off you know, lack of a better term, the jump you know, and that the NWO was formed. And I thought it was great for business. I mean, it really stirred the pot, on, in, I think, in both companies. And it, and it gave the guys something to uh, shoot for because you wanted to work with those guys. And, and I think, you know, up until uh, the thing that always happens in this crazy business that we're in is that success makes you want to do more and add to something that's not, it's not broken. So why were we fixing it? And then it was the red and black and the white and black and the Mexican NWO and the cruiserweight NWO and the 
you know, all these new world orders. And I think that's what we, that was the overkill to it. But initially I was a huge fan of uh, the NWO when it came in and what they were doing because it, it, you know, business was taken off. I remember being a big fan of the Dungeon of Doom, quite frankly. And when that came in, to me, it was almost like a bigger version with bigger names. And that's no offense to you or Kevin Sullivan or the Giant or anybody else. It's just the truth. And I remember seeing that. And I'm like, well, they're not creepy. It's, it's, it's like the Dungeon of Doom without the creepy factor. It's more so like a cool factor. So yeah. and I, to me, I guess that's why I believe it works so well. Um, and, you know, at the same time, the Monday Night Roar, or excuse me, the Monday Night War was really taking off. I've always wanted, and I always ask the guys who come on the show this question, how much did you pay attention to what the WWF was doing, or did you not pay attention at all? You were just, you know, full steam ahead doing your own thing. Well, I feel like you had to, you had to start paying attention to it because there was there was so many people in the, in the back, you know, behind the curtains talking about it. Like, you know, do your thing and, and whatever. But we had the TV on their show every week and we were watching what they had done taped and, you know, as we were, you know, famous for giving away what was happening on their show, like the famous Mick Foley's going to win the championship kind of thing and all, all those things. So for a long time, I didn't pay attention to it because it didn't pertain to me. And then you had no choice but to pay attention to now the, you know, what what's now deemed the Monday Night Wars because every week now you were seeing what everybody was shooting for and building towards and and, and, you know, and then once the guys are talking, because, you know, regardless of what people think, a lot of the, a lot of the boys on, in both companies knew each other and were talking back and forth. And so it was always always that thing anyway. So I think even if you didn't want to know about it, you got caught up in it and wanted to see where else it was going. And then you wanted to be part of it because of the way, you know, at the time WCW was putting it to WWE, you wanted to be you wanted to be on those shows. You wanted to be part of it. So, you uh, you're in a clip that now has probably been shown a gazillion times, and I think you know the one I'm talking about here. You uh, famous, infamous, however you want to call it, Bill Goldberg's first match um, yeah. uh, <laughs> on Nitro, right? So, you know, a lot of times the guys come on the show and say, "Hey, it's okay to be pinned." You know what I mean? You're on TV. That's all that matters. That night, that match, um, after that was done, did you, I mean, just working with the guy for a few minutes there, did anything ever go through your mind like, man, this guy might become the biggest thing there is, or was it just another night at the job? It, it was, a, it was the, the conversation, the way it was broke to me was, and again, he, he, not the best delivery in the world, Terry Taylor's very, uh, I'll just say, uh, outspoken, uh, you know, it was one of those, you're going to get killed tonight, this guy's going to do it no questions asked do your job but then it was explained to me like hey we want to see what we got here you know do your thing and i knew what my thing was and my thing was to go out there and try to have the best match that i could with whoever i was in there with and sometimes that means becoming you know become a bumping machine and and let this guy do his stuff so that's what it was and i it was a pleasure working with bill and uh Let's face it, in his streak, I was probably 30 of those matches. Um, but I never thought that, and I say this all the time, I didn't. I don't know if Bill thought it. I don't think anybody ever thought that it was going to turn into what it did. And so, you know, for a lot of years, people tried to read into it and go, oh, Hugh Morris was doing so good, and then, they, you, know, you know, he jobbed out, and he got beat on TV and all this stuff. 
if my claim to fame in this industry is being the first in Bill Goldberg's career, I'm so cool with that because, one, it's my job. It's not, you know, it wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't a shot. It wasn't this. This guy, it was his time. Let's see what he's got. They put the rocket on him, and he held on tight, and he had a hell of a career. And to me, it was, it's fun to look back on that stuff because, you know, my son who's 12 and missed that whole era. He looks back and goes, wow, people know Goldberg. And then they hear my name, and they go, wow, you were kind of in the midst of the time. And that's, that's the way I kind of look at it was they trusted me with it. I, I feel like I did my job there, and I'm a part of wrestling history. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, it is what it is. It's it, if you don't take yourself too seriously and remember, yeah. you know, hey, this at the end of the day, it is a job. You hate to put it that way, but it is. So, yeah. yeah and, that, and that's one of the things I always liked about you. You were honest about that kind of stuff. Um, I don't have too many more questions about WCW, but I have a few more than a few with WWE. And I, I thank you for taking the time. Um, so this is one that I ask every guy who comes on the show who was was with WCW at the time. Because this, to me, I can't believe there hasn't been a book written about this subject. The 1997 Starcade, and I remember this, you know, I was a sophomore in high school, and I've been a wrestling fan my entire life. That's why I do it now as a journalist. Starcade 1997. They built this puppy up for 18 months with Sting and Hawk Hogan. And to me, in, in my eyes as a kid, I mean, my God, this was like going to be the Super Bowl of wrestling. I've never been more disappointed in a match in my life than Sting versus Hogan at, at Star K97. You were there in the crowd. They had you know wrestlers in the crowd. They made it seem like this was going to be just the end all be all. What do you know? I mean, what happened in that match? You know, they say, okay, well, Nick Patrick is supposed to be a fast count. It clearly wasn't. They bring out Bret Hart. That was a debacle. And I'm a huge Bret Hart fan, so I was really pissed when that happened. And the whole entire night was just terrible. Was it egos that got involved? Was Sting out of shape? In your honest estimation, being there, what the hell happened with that finish? I think that, and again, it's just my opinion, and I'm I'm not in the know, but being around it, kind of the background, I just think everybody, it got very personal. It became like this unprofessional thing of, you know, I'm going to take my ball and go home kind of stuff, or I'm not doing that. I'm doing it. Okay. You want me to do it? I'll do it, but I'm not putting my heart and soul into it. You know, this is just one of those things. And I think that was, that was the problem was people were allowed to get away with that. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm never going to say anything bad about Hulk Hogan. I'm never going to say anything bad about Sting. I'm never going to talk bad about any of the guys, but the fact of the matter was we completely, we as a company, I think we screwed the pooch, and, and I think that really hurt hurt all the progress that was made. And then it opened the door for other guys to think that they could then act like that too. And that's just my honest opinion. I thought it stunk. Yeah, I remember watching it with my dad. Um, you know, and my dad was he he wanted to spend time with me, right? So he was going to watch whatever I was going to watch, and I was I talked him up. All uh, right, I talked to you guys and, and WCW up for months. And then he sits down with me and he's like, well, wait a second, you know, because it was supposed to be Raven versus um, Chris Benoit, and then Raven didn't do it, he had Saturn, then it was going to be the Giant versus Kevin Nash, then Kevin Nash didn't show up. And he's, you know, pay-per-views aren't cheap, you know, back even then they weren't 30 bucks or whatnot, and my, da- my dad's like, what the hell am I paying for here? I'm like, the main event, Dad, I'm, trust me, the main event's going to save this night. And then that was the biggest dud, 
And I just remember being like, I don't know if I could trust myself spending money on WCW moving forward. So, but yeah. one thing that they did do right, I didn't, and then I'll say this, they did a lot of things right. Um, one thing that I loved about this, and you might laugh, but I thought it was great actually. One of the very few storylines and ideas that Vince Russo actually got over with the fans was the Misfits. The Misfits in action. I personally loved it. Why do you think it got over with the fans, and how much fun did you have with that angle? Because to me, it was like a, a kind of off-the-wall, out-of-nowhere thing, but it got over huge. Well, you know, the funny part was they had nothing for us and literally told us, like, we could care less what you're doing right now. You don't fit into anything that we're doing. And so when Russo came up with this kind of this misfits thing, and then he opened the door for us to, you know, to chime in and have ideas. So we became the the misfits in action. We became the MIA. And all of a sudden we had all these, you know, play on words with Corporal Cajun and, and you know, Lieutenant Lash or whatever it was, you know. And we then got the freedom because we were having fun with it and because no one really cared what we were doing. That allowed us to get over it. There was no pressure on us. We could do the things that were fun. We were kind of, um, here's where I'll get in trouble and people go, he's got to be kidding. But we were WCW's version of DX. Uh, you know, on a, uh, I think a more comedic level because, mm -hmm. you know, I, and I say we don't have the talent that DX had, but you put all of us together doing what we did and the vignettes and the backstage stuff and, just being allowed to have that freedom to try things, the Misfits became a serious, you know, a serious little group of, of guys. And um, we did great business as as uh, as the Misfits, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I feel like Booker T was probably one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time. Um, he gave your group instant legitimately, I can't say the word, <laughs> legitimate, <laughs> legitimate C, there you go. Um, just instantly, you know what I mean? I, I just remember that was, that was a rough time to watch WCW, but that was one of those things where you didn't fl flick back over to Raw. If you guys were on, I kept it on every time. Um, oh, yeah, we, we truly had a lot of fun and we took our, you know, because we were, we were a group of the guys that were on the road as much as anybody else because we, we were we would work. I mean, we'd go out there for 20 minutes a night and work with anybody and, and, and deliver where some guys had contracts where they only worked 40 days a year. We worked every night. So then put that in where I got to run with Lance Storm for nine months, 12 months straight on live events and stuff. Those are nights off and we worked hard and it gelled and, and the misfits really took off. And then it helped Chavo break out. It helped me break out into, you know, going back slightly into Hugh Morris, but then turning into the Bill DeMott, you know, so it was, it was really, it was really cool. And I, I always thank Vince for that and the, the, the uh, time uh, to get that done. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I couldn't agree more watching it as a fan for sure. Yeah. One more question for you on WCW and then just okay. a, just a couple here with WWE. Um, very much appreciate your time. Now, um, this is another fun one, you know, because, again, I'm a father. You know, I have kids, and you, you had young kids as well at the time. What was going through What was going through your mind emotionally? And, and, you know, when you found out that WCW had been bought out, what were some of the, you know, your memories of that night, that final Nitro, and just, I mean, I don't mean to be weird, but, like, were you scared? Like, what, what were your, some of your emotions thinking, like, hey, I have a family to take care of. You know, what is going to happen next? Well, we, 
you know, there was there there'd been talk for months about this, that Pepsi and AOL was in and Coke was in or whoever was out this one was in and so you just kind of took it every day as a grain of salt and what can you do? You you still had to do your job. And I was never one to get involved in all the stuff behind the scenes. Some people think that was wrong. I should have been more involved um, and played the politics a little bit more. I'm not a politics guy. So I just went about my day and kind of took the rumors for what they were. Uh, but when we showed up in Panama and we saw signs saying WWE personnel only, at first we thought it was a rip, you know, because of everything that goes on in WCW. Everybody was working everybody and trying to get over in a certain way. Um, and then we saw Shane McMahon and Jerry Briscoe and Bruce Pritchard. I think Pat, Pat Patterson was there as well. And I instantly started thinking about, well, I'm going back to Japan. Yeah. You know, because I, my wrestling career wasn't over uh, as far as I was concerned. So I figured, well, I'll go back to Japan. I'm definitely, I never thought I was um, WWF material, only because of all the, the players on our side. You would think that's where they were going to go. So uh, Shane McMahon that night asked me if I would go out and start the night off in a dark match. And he said, don't, don't take offense to this. He goes, this gives us a chance to see what you do. He goes, but would you start the night off? And I said, absolutely. So we went and, uh, you know, we worked our match. And, um, coming home, just everybody was down, you know, at the end of the night, usually, you know, especially Panama city, you go to the hotel bar, guys be hanging out, relax before they go home. And it was a lot more of, uh, people pointing fingers and people worried about their jobs and I was trying to figure out okay I'm going to go back to Japan and you know hopefully not tour as much as I used to over there I never really gave a second thought to it to be honest and then I got a phone call uh, from John Laurinaitis that said um, they're taking 10 people and I'm one of the 10 do I want a job and I went uh yeah that's incredible man um you know, you were there a little while in uh, WWE. I was gotta remember it's WWE now. You know, it's been that way for twenty years. Right. <laughs> Growing up as a diehard, you know, always WWF. <clears throat> one of the cool, and we talked a little bit real briefly about this before we started the interview. One of the coolest things I saw you do, and pretty much my favorite thing I've ever seen you do, quite frankly, was when you were a coach on Tough Enough. Tough Enough is what it is. You know what I mean? Some of it was real, some of it was a reality show, but to me. It, a lot of it was real. And what you did there w was the most raw, emotional thing I've seen. While you were there, though, there was a guy named John uh, Hennigan, who obviously became John Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. Anything jump off the page back then, uh, being around him, thinking like, holy, man, this guy's got it. Like, did you know instantly, or was it kind of a surprise? No, from, from the jump. From the jump, you knew he was, A, he was athletic. He had no fear. He would try anything we put in front of him. Um, he was definitely coachable. Um, and I say this respectfully because I think the world of John, he was young and cocky and wasn't afraid to let you know, like, there's nothing you put in front of me that I won't do or can't or can't do. And he just had that. You knew from day one that he was a contender and you knew he was an athlete and that as long as he kept paying attention and doing what he was doing, 
you, I mean, you knew from pretty much day one um, that this kid, this kid's a winner. Whether he won that uh, show or not, he, you knew he was going to be part of this business because we all saw something in him, and he's turned into so much more than I think we thought he was going to be. Um, but, but John was definitely a, a standout. I always thought he was great. Um, you know, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble here, but I don't know how much of the, the current product you watch. I feel like right now he's being misused like drastically oh, bad. They're making him yeah. into they're making him into like a comedy act and it's just so stupid because he's still I mean, the guy is older now and he's still in great shape, unbelievable athletic, um, good personality, and I just it drives me nuts watching what they're doing with him. It's stupid. Um, and it just bugs me as a longtime fan, quite frankly. And I don't want to get, you know, again, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble with that comment, oh, but no, it's no. the truth. I, I, I'll tell you, it, you know, it, the, the blessing and curse of being entertaining is that, you know, John can be fine with him in the Miz. It's just a natural charisma. Unfortunately, then they, that's how they look at him now. And they forget that you're dealing with a world-class athlete who, who has more to offer. So, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody. I'm, I'm like you when I watch the politics. Sometimes I look at it and go, well, I, I don't get it. But it seems like, you know, John's happy with what he's doing, and he's probably just holding on to live event start where he can get out there and shine like he always does. But I agree. I'm not a, I'm not particularly a fan of the John Morrison they're, they're portraying right now. No, not at all. And he hasn't had some major injury, right? And I'm not trying to jinx the guy, but it's like, look, you've been he's been healthy. Why not take advantage of that? Don't wait for something yeah. stupid to happen. And it just oh, yeah. drives me nuts. Same show, though, Tough Enough 3. Was there anybody on that cast that you're surprised didn't make it? Like, Was there like somebody there you were like, wow, this guy's got it? He or she, I'm sorry, he or she had it and then just never did anything at all. Well, I was, I was, I'm, I, and I keep in contact with a lot of those kids from, from every season. I call them kids because, you know, I'm an old man. But... Um, I thought Justin Juice was would still continue it. I actually thought Jonah would have continued from that season as well. But I think a lot of them, they sign on for this thing. They get, you know, we talk about it all the time, they get famous because now they're on a national TV show in front of millions of people. But at the end of the day, regardless of what we did show, didn't show, they knew they were getting into a business that demanded a lot from them, physically, mentally, emotionally. And so I'm not, I'm, so I'm often surprised who doesn't pursue it after these shows are over, but I'm not really surprised by as many people who, well, that's not for me anyway. Well, then, you know, everything, and that's why I'm not a big fan of people, uh, you know, this is my passion, this is all I want to do in my life, and then you didn't win the show, and you never get back into the business. So we, we were very uh, good at weeding people out that way and, and seeing who really wanted to be there. But I, there was a few surprises over the years. And then it, not to, you know, turn the, the conversation, but then you look at someone who got cut early on because we knew she was going to hurt herself and she just didn't have the physical ability to stay safe was Molina. Yeah. Lo and behold, a year after that, she's an OVW and she's doing all these things. And Melina became a legitimate WWF superstar. So it's so funny to see how things turn out for people. Yeah, man, you hit that on the head. 
Uh, last question for you today, and thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate this. This thank is, you, oh yeah, no doubt. This is a question, um, one of my favorite ones to talk about. I, uh, you know, I, I remember speaking with it uh, with Al Snow for, uh, man, he probably won 20 minutes on this subject, and I think Tom Pritchard did as well. And I would encourage our fans to go back, listen to the interviews with Tom Pritchard and Al Snow, both fantastic. Um, this question here, I mean, oh yeah, they are. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. El Snow, you want to talk about people who are underrated? My God, he was he was incredible. But so here's the question, all right? And this one means a lot to me. Again, I'm 39 years old. I've been watching this, uh, and I call it a sport. I, I just do wrestling to me as a sport. Been watching it my whole life. So here here we go. The performance center is a pretty amazing place, but does it hurt? But does it hurt athletes if that and NXT is their only form of background? Rather than learning the roads, paying the dues, making the sacrifice, working on the indies, all that stuff that comes with it, you know, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but there is, we're, we're past the point in wrestling where every wrestler needs to look the same or have the same skill set, moveset. To me, anytime you're cranking them out in a factory, that might happen. I know you were there for a while and you could talk as little about it as you want or as much about it as you want. It's your oh, forum. Yeah. Go, I mean, go ahead. What do you feel about everything? I mean, you were there. You saw it firsthand. What, I mean, are they, uh, sometimes I just feel like they're too nice to these guys. Like you're not, not everything's nice in this world. Like how do you feel about all that? Yeah. The concept when, when I first came back in 2011, was it? I think, uh, the concept of the performance center blew me away. Something I never thought we'd see in, in my lifetime or in my career and just dealing with Paul one-on-one and personally working with him and listening to the, the vision, it's outstanding. When you walk in with seven rings and one ring to learn bumps and maneuvers, and, you know, at, at the time there was 5,500 square foot of, of strength and conditioning and the training rooms and the top-of-the-line things to, to, to rehab injuries, promo room, the whole thing. And I told everybody who ever came in for a tryout, if you're making a living in this business and are having fun and don't need to come here, don't. Because once you come, and it's not a bad thing, once you come, here's your schedule. Here's what we do. Here's the playbook. Here's the plays we run. Here's how we run them. Here's why we run them. And you get to learn that. And sometimes that means taking everything you know and work hard for and your things, put them on the back burner. And now we want you to learn and adjust to the WWF, WWE way of thinking and how entertainment goes and all these other things. So while you're out there, you made your bones. And the reason you were looked at was because you made a name for yourself. Understand that we're going to take it reform it and make it into a WWF production. And you still see that today when you take, um, let's say you take a Pac, you bring him in. He's well-known, well-traveled. We're big fans. We love him. Then you gave him the Adrian Neville thing. He got over in NXT. But then when he went to the main roster, it wasn't a fit. And so we... You know, at the time you're grooming guys, and at the time before NXT really blew up and became its own entity, the idea was to go to NXT, 
get tightened up, if you will, whatever the right word is, get it in, you know, playing position, introduce it to the main roster, and off they go, much like Tyler Breeze. But as you see, things change. So that's why NXT is branched off into its own thing. And I do think people need, before they come to the performance center, green or new to the business, I think they do need those time, that time on the road. They do need to, to travel and to struggle. Because once you come to the PC, there's no struggle, man. Nope. You're home every night. You, you know your schedule every day. If you're hurt, we can get you through it. We never questioned it. But some people took, that, took advantage of that. So they were there. And, and, and people then made that place Groundhog's Day. Because they felt, oh, I'm doing the same thing, and I'm not, you know, and I want to do this, and I belong in the main roster. And you try to let them know that, no, they're not ready for what's going to be asked of them. And, you know, that's that's where the differences of opinion come in. But it was never cookie cutter, but it definitely took away a lot of creative juices from guys and girls because they felt like they fell into a trap of Groundhog's Day. Okay, today I got to live. When the company gives you a state-of-the-art strength conditioning thing and you say, I don't want to lift here, I want to lift on my own, well, then you're telling the company that you're better than what the company has to offer. So I will will say it's a big culture shock for guys and girls that have made their living and made their bones on the road. And then to come and find out that even on live events at, at, at NXT, they were still having to get there and set up the ring and tear down and all that stuff. And they... And some thought they were past that. But that's still the business we're in. And regardless of what level you were, that's you know, that was part of learning the business and respecting it. So I think a lot of a lot of the generation that's come in the last five to ten years, it's been a culture shock and it's made a lot of them unhappy. And they're happier when they go back and do what they want to do, how they want to do it, and not be told what their character is or what, you know what works and what doesn't work. I think, I think, I think Pac's a perfect example. Is a gold mine. Yeah. And I, I mean, everything you said is a hundred percent on the money. I think the, the example of Pac is, is a great example. I'll say this too, because I've, I was blessed to know this guy. I've known Johnny Gargano 15 years, watching him yeah. wrestle in the Indies here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, even Eric, uh, Ray Rowe, as they called him here in, in Cleveland, now part of the Viking Raiders, uh, I've known Vic yeah. Trevliante. I wrote a book actually where uh, Vic Trevliante, who is now known as Vic Charles, or sorry, Vic Joseph. Um, you know, I've known these guys for a long time, and they worked the Indies, and that's why they're hitting as big as they are. I'll say this about Johnny Gargano: that kid had it ten years ago. He had it. Oh yeah. And and and, and again, I'm not trying to bash anybody or get a big war here, but NXT had nothing to do with it. I'm sorry. When he that kid was ready when he got there, he's just excelling. Because of that, because now he has that platform, they're seeing it. I'll throw out two names, and, and again, I love NXT. To me, Wednesday nights became my favorite night between NXT and AEW. Um, I, I think I think NXT is fantastic. But I'll say this. There's two names I'm going to throw out there for people to think about for a quick second. Daniel Bryan and Rob Van Dam. And I say that because of this. Rob Van Dam had a style that was unique to himself when he got to WWE. If that was a guy who came up through the system... I don't think we would have seen him do half the things he did. Who knows if he would have ever got over. Lord knows, same thing with Daniel Bryan. They tried to hold that kid back as much as they could. He's fantastic. So, again, to me, it's like you need to have these guys 
find their own abilities, find their own character, find their own uniqueness. Yes, it's okay. You want to have them do a, a thousand, you know, Hindu squats to show they're tough. Yeah, no problem. Whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, you need to give them that creative, that creative juice, that creative outlet. You know, I'll, I'll ask you one bonus question here, just because we're on the subject. One last bonus question. Dusty Rhodes was there at the same time you were as well. What was it like working with him, and how much did he help? Because to me, I've heard so many good things. Well, you know, first of all, they're, they're, we don't have enough days in the week to talk about the dream. Um, we did so much together personally and professionally, and, and getting, you know, I get to sit under the, the dusty tree for many years, and um, and I think it was a learning curve for Dusty, too, because Dusty came into this business and was very successful in every aspect of it, the way he did things. And he had to learn and I had to learn and, you know, Norman Smiley had to learn and all the, we all had to learn a different way of thinking. And I, and I, and I think that's where a lot of the stories come from, like the negative stories. Well, they didn't let me do this and we worked so hard. No, no, you didn't. You, you, you're frustrated because you're not where you want to be because you hear about other people and you were told by certain people who brought you in that you would only be, and that was the problem. We had people that were scouting and telling people, listen, you may be here three months and then you're going to be in the main roster. Well, they're there for a year now and, and they're not in the main roster. And now they're miserable, you know, because they're losing their creative juices. Now they've got a schedule instead of being on the road and all those things. But learning from Dusty was unbelievable. And even Dusty struggled with, coming to terms with, okay, this is a certain way that things are done, and this is the way Paul wanted it. Um, and Paul made no bones about it. This is the way we're doing it. So it was a learning curve for Dusty. But there was no one better to build you up or make you think than Dusty Rhodes. He took time with every one of those kids, whether they were, um, lack of a better term, failing or the most successful talent we had whether they could cut a great promo or they couldn't talk, he treated everybody the same. And then he brought you in and sat you down and goes, this is where you suck. This is what we have to fix. Are we on the same page? And he made no bones about making sure that everybody knew that he was on their side. And they truly were all Dusty's kids, man. And to watch him deal with, you know, you know, the hardest thing, what people didn't realize at the time was, a guy like Dusty and, and myself and, um, you know, the strength coach, and we were dealing with a hundred talent at a time. Those talent are just dealing with their own careers. You know what I mean? Yep. So it, it was, it was a challenge to how do you, how do you keep a hundred talent that are all different and keep them motivated, keep them going. And naturally you're going to have some that are unhappy and some that aren't. And Dusty was always the conduit to that. He always tried to take time with the most unhappy and reassure them that what they were doing is right. They're on the right. They're on the right page. They're going the right way, and it's just a waiting game. And Dusty just had a way with talking to you that made it all better. And it, you know, he gave you he gave you reasons to keep trying and and not give up. And 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 then he pulled out the best in everybody. Well. We appreciate it again today. Um, you know, a lot of things you said about Dusty Rhodes. I feel the same way now about Cody. I think, you know, his uh, a lot of his promos, his in-ring promos really, very emotional but very real, very raw. And I think yeah. that I think that's why AEW is working. Um, you know, to me, for the last 20-plus years, I would have said there's no way, no chance in hell there's ever going to be another nationally 
uh, syndicated wrestling promotion that's going to make it, be on TV. It's just never going to happen. And I, I would have bet you every dime I had in my banking account. Um, I no longer feel that way. I just don't. I mean, AEW to me is just tremendous. I'm shocked. I'm beyond shocked that it's done this well, this quickly. Um, but again, I think that the, the Rhodes bloodline, quite frankly, is really is what helping. It's helping those guys. Also, the Young Bucks and Omega, and just it seems like that creativeness is there. Um, the being yourself thing. I mean, you know, Bill, what have you heard from since you've been a little kid? Right, be yourself, be yourself. AEW, yeah. AEW allows those guys to do that. From what I could tell, allows those guys to do that. And I really think that's why it's working. So, again, though, we want to thank you. Uh, before I let you go, I want I want you to give yourself one more shout-out. Uh, mention, you know, the podcast again there at 5.30 on Tuesdays. And uh, just whatever you want to plug, please do so. Well, it, it, this, this has been great, man. I appreciate your time and having me on. Um, thank you to everybody out there. Um, so what I, what I do now is I, you know, um, for those who don't know, I run the Carrie and DeMott uh, Foundation. Um in my daughter's name, and I, I now I, I become a motivational speaker, and I travel the country, and I speak to students and law enforcement and organizations, and and we talk about things that are that are relevant to the kids today about you know decisions we make and how they affect others. Um, I still take opportunities when they when they come about to people who book me for seminars and and uh, personal appearances because I love this business. I always will. And when I'm not doing that and staying busy with the foundation, we have the weekly podcast on Facebook Live. It's called Face Value. It's 5.30 Eastern Eastern time every Tuesday. And the WWAB network that we call it is growing. And you can catch every every episode show we do uh, Monday through Sunday on uh, Facebook Live. And if you join our page, like our pages, you'll see it. And... As always, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to share a little bit about my career in the business. And uh, everybody's always with the well wishes, and the wrestling community has always backed me up, and I appreciate it. And, uh, man, Vince, for your time, man. Thank you so much, brother. Oh, yeah. No no doubt about it. Thank you. Uh, you know, I say this with 100% sincerity, too. Like, you were one of the guys I really wanted to talk to. Um, you know, it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to explain, but... Again, as someone who's been watching this stuff 35 years, um, you just know the people who you, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but you know the people who you're going to have an intelligent conversation with, and you, you know, I'm just going to say it, and you, you know the people who are going to treat you like a mark, and that's the thing, you know, and we, we don't mind, you know, if I understand people, certain wrestlers out there, they have booking fees, and you know, unless it's something ludicrous, you know, we, we, we try to pay them if we can, but you know, to me, it's it's like you said. Anytime you could you could give back, uh, and we do that. We do this all the time. You know, mo- most of our guests are high school athletes. We call it the Player Spotlight Series. Um, the biggest thing we do at Keon Sports is, is high school sports. Really big in the high school football. I'm here in Ohio. High school football in Ohio is gigantic. So, you know, we we try to feature the kids, honor them, those student athletes who work so hard. That's always been our mission. But, you know, with this platform and with me being a wrestling fan as I've been, I, I, I do reach out to wrestlers as well. So, Bill, again, I want to thank you. Please spread the word to the rest of the guys on your network. Everybody is welcome to come on, and we want to wish you the best of luck. And if you ever need something from us, if you need something plugged, please don't hesitate to ask. Thank you, and same here. Hey, you know what? Give those, give your, give those high school boys a shout-out. I'd love to come and talk to the whole team and stuff and, and get to know them if we ever have an opportunity to do that. Oh, absolutely! I'll send uh, I'll send the message out to all the coaches. Not a problem at all. 
Wish you the, the best of luck, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. All right, that was Bill DeMont. You guys knew him in WCW as Hugh Morris, and obviously in WWE as under his real name there. But I got to tell you, kind of like I said in the very beginning of this podcast, this was a guy who screamed intelligence, and he didn't have to do it. He actually talked softly. But, and, and like you said, you know, sometimes his promos were just him laughing, but there was just something about watching him as a fan where I knew there's more to this guy, you know. And then eventually when he became a coach on Tough Enough 3, um, that showed it to me. That really showed it. Like, wow, yeah, he actually does care. And here's the thing, too, with, with the rough exterior that you see sometimes. Life is not cupcakes and rainbows, all right? And, you know, we, we just got done talking about Friday Night Football there. You might see things on Friday nights during a football game and you think, oh, man, yeah, these coaches, they're, they're you know, they're slapping hands and everything, but... You don't know what goes on in practice. Like you, you have to toughen these kids up. You have to, you have to be tough. You know, high school football is in, uh, in football in general. You have to be tough. Professional wrestling, my goodness, do you have to be tough? Um, and like you said, you know, a lot of things there with the performance center. Very, very true. He really hit it on the head. And if there was ever a guy who's qualified to talk about it, clearly it's him. So we want to thank everybody for joining us. You can reach me, Vince McKee, by email at coachvin14 at yahoo.com. That's the word coach, the letters V-I-N, the number 14 at yahoo.com. For our guest, Bill DeMott, I'm Vince McKee. Everybody, have a blessed day.